Well, hello. This isn't a usual uh, post, um, but today, as you'll know to be aware, um, Salman Rushdie was attacked uh, at an event in New York, uh, stabbed in the neck. Currently, as I speak, uh, in surgery. Um, and, well, quite little is known of the motive of the attacker. Um, I mean, we can assume that uh, there's a good chance that uh, it's to do with the satanic verses and the fatwa and all of that, but we don't know for sure. It, maybe it was just a, a lunatic, uh, or maybe it was somebody trying to claim the bounty uh, that is on Rushdie's life to this day. Well, I mean, when I when I saw the news earlier on today, uh, I saw it just as it was breaking. Um, I mean, I rarely kind of I rarely um, openly gasp in shock at the news, but uh, in this case, I did, and uh, I felt and still feel quite quite emotional about it. Um, I just hope that Rushdie pulls through. Um, I've been tweeting a lot about the whole situation, um, including one of his uh, famous quotes, free speech is the whole thing, the whole ball game, free speech is life itself, which comes from a 1991 essay uh, when he's uh, discussing his experiences in hiding during the early uh, years of the fatwa. It's strange, I was, I mean, I feel, felt, felt and feel sad. Uh, it might seem slightly absurd, I mean, of course, I don't know Rushdie personally, but as somebody who's an avid reader of his fiction and essays and stories, um, I feel quite a, an attachment and I admire him immensely. So yes, I feel sad and I don't know if I'll say grief stricken, but uh, just by bringing up the term, you understand perhaps some of what I feel. I also feel very angry. As I said, I don't know whether this is inspired by the fatwa or the satanic verses, um, but uh, either way I'm angry and I feel very, really genuinely kind of, I mean I'm quite calm now, but earlier I was, I was as I was driving uh, earlier, I, I uh, driving down a, a back country road, I just was, I was just clenching the steering wheel while I was thinking about it as I was driving. Pull through, pull through something. So all that as a prologue to introduce some readings from some Rushdie uh, books. I know that I have featured him frequently on my <laughs> my readings, but uh, 
this is certainly a time that justifies it. So um, I just read from short bits from a few of his books. Um, I'll explain as I go along. First, um, from his essay on stories, uh, on wonder tales, um, which is uh, published in his most recent collection, Languages of Truth. Uh, it's an essay that deals with the nature of storytelling and the importance of storytelling. And I'm just going to read the first uh, first few paragraphs or so. Um, I think it sums up quite a lot of rushed-in view of life. So let me just jump into it. Before there were books, there were stories. At first, the stories weren't written down. Sometimes they were even sung. Children were born, and before they could speak, their parents sang them songs. A song about an egg that fell off a wall, perhaps. Or about a boy and a girl who went up a hill and fell down it. As the children grew older, they asked for stories almost as often as they asked for food. Now there was a goose that laid golden eggs, or a boy who sold the family cow for a handful of magic beans, or a naughty rabbit trespassing on a dangerous farmer's land. The children fell in love with these stories and wanted to hear them over and over again. Then they grew older and found those stories in books and other stories that they had never heard before, about a girl who fell down a rabbit hole, or a silly old bear, and an easily scared piglet, and a gloomy donkey, or a phantom tollbooth, or a place where wild things were. They heard and read stories, and they fell in love with them. Mickey in the night kitchen with magic bakers who all looked like Oliver Hardy, and Peter Pan, who thought death would be an awfully big adventure. And Bilbo Baggins, under a mountain, winning a riddle contest against a strange creature who had lost his precious. And the act of falling in love with stories awakened something in the children that would nourish them all their lives, their imagination. The children fell in love with stories easily, and lived in stories too. They made up play stories every day. They stormed castles and conquered nations and sailed the ocean blue. And at night their dreams were full of dragons. They were all storytellers now, makers of stories as well as receivers of stories. But they went on growing up and slowly the stories fell away from them. The stories were packed away in boxes in the attic, and it became harder for the former children to tell and receive stories, harder for them, sadly, to fall in love. For some of them, stories began to seem irrelevant, unnecessary, kid stuff. These were sad people, and we must pity them, and try not to think of them as stupid, boring, philistine losers. I believe 
that the books and stories we fall in love with make us who we are, or, not to claim too much, that the act of falling in love with a book or story changes us in some way, and the beloved tale becomes a part of our picture of the world, a part of the way in which we understand things and make judgments and choices in our daily lives. As adults, falling in love less easily, we may end up with only a handful of books that we can say that we can truly say we love. Maybe this is why we make so many bad judgments. Nor is this love unconditional or eternal. A book may cease to speak to us as we grow older, and our feeling for it will fade. Or we may suddenly, as our lives shape and hopefully increase our understanding, be able to appreciate a book we dismissed earlier. We may suddenly be able to hear its music, to be enraptured by its song. When, as a college student, I first read Gunter Grass's great novel The Tin Drum, I was unable to finish it. It languished on a shelf for fully ten years before I gave it a second chance, whereupon it became one of my favourite novels of all time, one of the books I would say that I love. It is an interesting question to ask oneself. Which are the books that you truly love? Try it. The answer will tell you a lot about who you presently are. I grew up in Bombay, India, a city that is no longer today at all like the city it once was, and has even changed its name to the much less euphonious Mumbai. In a time so unlike the present that it feels impossibly remote, even fantastic, a real-life version of the mythic golden age. Childhood, as A.E. Houseman reminds us in the land of lost content, often also called Blue Remembered Hills, is the country to which we all once belonged and will all eventually lose. Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. In that far off Bombay, the stories and books that reached me from the West seemed like true tales of wonder. Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen with its splinters of magic mirror that entered people's bloodstreams and turned their hearts to ice, was even more terrifying to a boy from the tropics, where the only ice was in their refrigerator. The Emperor's New Clothes felt especially enjoyable to a boy growing up in the immediate aftermath of the British Empire. And there was Huckleberry Finn, irresistible to a Bombay boy because of its hero's extraordinary freedom of action, Though I was puzzled about why, if the runaway slave Jim was trying to escape the world of slavery and get to the non-slave-owning North, did he get onto a raft in the Mississippi, which flows south? Perhaps tales of elsewhere always feel like fairy tales, and certainly it is one of the great wonders of literature that it opens up many elsewheres to us. From the Little Mermaid's underwater world to Dorothy's Oz, and makes them ours. But for me, the real wonder tales were closer to home, and I have always thought it my great good fortune as a writer to have grown up steeped in them.
Some of these stories were sacred in origin, but because I grew up in a non-religious household, I was able to receive them simply as beautiful stories. This did not mean I did not believe them. When I heard about the Samudra Mantan, oh, apologies, I don't know why I did that in a Spanish accent. <laughs> the tale of how the great god Indra churned the Milky Way, using the fabled Mount Mandara as his churning stick to force the giant ocean of milk in the sky to give up its nectar, Amrita, the nectar of immortality, I began to see the stars in a new way. In that impossibly ancient time, my childhood, a time before late pollution made most of the stars invisible to city dwellers, a boy in a garden in Bombay could still look up at the night sky and hear the music of the spheres and see with humble joy the thick stripe of the galaxy there. I imagined it dripping with magic nectar. Maybe if I opened my mouth, a drop might fall in and then I would be immortal too. This is the beauty of the wonder tale and its descendant, fiction. That one can simultaneously know that the story is a work of imagination, which is to say, untrue, and believe it to contain profound truth. The boundary between the magical and the real at such moments ceases to exist. And on that note, I will now read a couple of little bits from one of his lesser known, but I think one of his uh, best, and certainly one of my favourite of his novels, Two Years, Eight Months and Twenty Eight Nights, which was published 2015, I think. Let me check. Yes, 2015. Um, now, this is a, a bit of a fantastical tale. Uh, with quite a lot that uh, I don't uh, have the time to explain, but basically um, it's a tale of the djinn uh, or the genies uh, coming into this world, the human world, and the war that ensues between the humans um, and Dunia, the genie princess, who fell in love long ago with Ibn Rushd's um, uh, and who has a soft spot for humanity and wants to help them fight against the dark gene who are um, seeking dominion over the earth. Now, um, I mean, that's a very basic outline of the story and it's uh, much richer and uh, philosophically deep than that. Um, so, but I'm going to read out a couple of little bits from it that I quite enjoyed. So here is a little bit where Dunia, the genie princess, um, is reflecting on, or rather the, the narrator is reflecting on Dunia and her relationship with humanity, which is uh, very different from other jinns. So this is this will be quite a short bit. Um, okay. Uh, it's kind of a love letter to humanity and all its metamorphoses and perversions uh, this novel I mean and this quit this exemplifies that so here here we go the jinn 
are not noted for their family lives, but they do have sex. They have it all the time. There are Jinn mothers or fathers, but the generations of the Jinn are so long that the ties between the generations often erode. Jinn fathers and daughters, as will be seen, are rarely on good terms. Love is rare in the Jinn world, but sex is incessant. The Jinn, we believe, are capable of the lower emotions, anger, resentment, vindictiveness, possessiveness, lust, especially lust, and even perhaps some forms of affection. But the high noble sentiments, selflessness, devotion and so on, these elude them. And this, as in so much else, Dunia proved herself exceptional. Nor do the jinn alter greatly with the passage of the years. For them, existence is purely the business of being, never becoming. For this reason, life in the jinn world can be tedious, except for the sex. Being, by its nature, is an inactive state, changeless, timeless, eternal and dull, except for their non-stop sex. This is why the human world was always so attractive to the jinn. The human way was doing. The human reality was alteration. Human beings were always growing and shriveling and striving and failing and yearning and envying, acquiring and losing and loving and hating and being in some interesting. And when the jinn were able to move through the slits between the worlds and meddle in all this human activity, when they could tangle or untangle the human web and accelerate or hold back the endless metamorphosis of human lives, human relations and human societies, they felt, paradoxically, more like themselves than they ever did in the static world of fairyland. It was human beings who allowed the jinn to express themselves, to create immense wealth for lucky fishermen, to imprison heroes in magic webs, to thwart history or enable it, to take sides in wars between the Kurus and Pandavas, for example, or the Greeks and Trojans, to play Cupid or to make it impossible for a lover ever to reach his beloved, so that she grew old and sad and died alone at her window, waiting for him to arrive. There you go. The human and the changing and the mutable over the transcendent and the eternal. And another little bit from the same book. Um, as I mentioned, Dunia long ago fell in love with the real-life philosopher, even Rashid, the heretical, heterodox thinker of the medieval Muslim world of Andalusia. And uh, she's come back in the present day to help humanity with uh, the dark jinn who are invading the human world. And uh, she appears to one of her descendants, or she finds one of her descendants that she had with Ibn Rashid, and he is the spitting image of her old, great human love. And so we begin with a, or so we embark upon a meditation on the nature of consciousness and and the soul, which uh, I shared with the neuroscientist and novelist Eric Hoel um, a little while ago, and he rather appreciated it. So here we go. Where have I seen that face before, she thought. 
uh, oh wait, let me just explain. She's appearing to, she's, he's in bed and she is watching him. Uh, and uh, for reasons that we don't need to get into, he is floating. Uh, he's uh, now uh, cursed with uh, floating several inches above the ground. Um, uh, so, but that's bye bye. Where have I seen that face before? She thought, and immediately answered herself, even though the memory was more than 800 years old. The face of her one true human love, even though there was no cloth wound around his head, and the grey beard was less carefully managed, rougher, wilder than in her remembering of it. Not the beard of a man who has chosen to have a beard, but the unkempt growth on the face of one who has simply given up shaving. Eight centuries and more since she had seen that face, yet here it was, as if it were yesterday, as if he had not abandoned her, as if he were not reduced to dust, dust of which she had spoken, animate dust, but dust nevertheless, disembodied, dead. As if he had been waiting for her here all this time, in the dark, for eight hundred years and more, waiting for her to find him and renew their ancient love. The floating was not a puzzle to a Jania princess. This had to be the work of Zabardast the sorcerer, Jinni. Zabardast had slipped through the first slits to reopen and cursed Geronimo Menezes. Why? That was a mystery. Was this random malice, or had Zabardast somehow intuited the existence of the Duniazat, uh, all her descendants, and understood that if properly marshalled, they might prove to be an obstacle to the power of the Dark Jinn, a resistance, a counterforce? Dunia did not believe in chance. The jinn believe in the purposive nature of the universe, in which even the random has a goal. She needed to answer the question of Zabardas' motives, and in time she found what she needed. She learned about Zabardas' plan to spread the dual diseases of rising and crushing, which would, once and for all, remove humanity from the surface of the earth. In the meanwhile, however, she was impressed by Geronimo Menezes' resistance to the spell. Ordinary men would simply have floated off into the sky to die, suffocated for lack of oxygen, frozen by the low temperature, attacked by territorial birds, incensed by a land creature's elevation into the air. But here was Geronimo, after quite a while, still only a relatively small distance off the ground, still able to occupy interiors and perform his natural functions without leaving a humiliating mess. This was an individual to admire, she thought, a tough customer. But mostly she was distracted by that face. She had not thought to see that face again. Ibn Rushd, caressing her body, had often praised its beauty to the point at which she grew irritated and said, you do not think my thoughts worth praising then? He replied that the mind and body were one, the mind was the form of the human body, and as such was responsible for all the actions of the body, one of which was thought. To praise the body was to praise the mind that ruled it. Aristotle had said this and he agreed, and because of this it was hard for him, he whispered blasphemously in her ear, to believe that consciousness survived the body, for the mind was of the body and had no meaning without it. She did not want to argue with Aristotle and said nothing. Plato was different, he conceded. Plato thought the mind was trapped in the body like a bird, and only when it could shed that cage would it soar and be free. 
She wanted to say, I am made of smoke. My mind is smoke. My thoughts are smoke. I am all smoke and only smoke. This body is a garment I put on, which by my magic art, I have made capable of functioning as a human body functions. It's so biologically perfect that it can conceive children and pop them out in threes, fours and fives. Yet, I am not of this body and could, if I chose, inhabit another woman, or an antelope, or a gnat. Aristotle was wrong, for I have lived for aeons, and altered my body when I chose, like a garment of which I had grown tired. The mind and body are two, she wanted to say, but she knew it would disappoint him to be disagreed with, so she held her tongue. Now, in Geronimo Menezes, she saw Ibn Rushd reborn and wanted to murmur, You see, you have entered a new body as well. You have moved through time, down the dark corridor that some say the soul travels between lives, sharing its old consciousness as it goes, relieving itself of its selfhood, until finally it is pure essence, the pure light of being, ready to enter another living thing. And nobody can deny that here you are again, different yet the same. Imagine that you came into the world blindfolded in the dark and floating in the air, just as you are now. You would not even know you had a body, and yet you would know that you were you. Your selfhood, your mind, that would be there as soon as you were conscious. It is a separate thing. But, she thought, arguing with herself, maybe it's not so. Maybe it is different with human beings who cannot change their form. And this sleeping figure's echo of a man long dead can be ascribed to a freak of biology and nothing more. Maybe, in the case of true humans, their mind, their soul, their consciousness flows through their bodies like blood, inhabiting every cell of their physical being. And so Aristotle was right. In humans, the mind and body are one and cannot be separated. The self is both with the body and perishes with it too. She imagined that union with a thrill. How lucky human beings were if that was the case, she wanted to tell Geronimo, who was and was not even Russian. Lucky and doomed. When their hearts pounded with excitement, their souls pounded too. When their pulses raced, their spirits were aroused. When their eyes moistened with tears of happiness, it was their minds that felt the joy. Their minds touched the people their fingers touched. And when they in turn were touched by others, it was as if two consciousnesses were briefly joined. The mind gave the body sensuality, it allowed the body to taste delight and to smell love in their lover's sweet perfume. Not only their bodies, but their minds too made love. And at the end, the soul, as mortal as the body, learned the last great lesson of life, which was the body's death. There we go, another pen to pain. Payen? Oh, gosh. I'm all, I'm all out of sorts tonight. Um, to the human, even to the uh, completely material, secular nature of life, over the eternal and uh, the spiritual, in the sense in which that word is usually um, used. Uh, I like that uh, very much that it... Uh, reverses that typical uh, thing where people would think 
people would often say in response to the idea that, my God, the mind and the body are one, we're going to die, uh, we're not going to be reborn, and they would react with horror. Well, here's this supernatural being who actually reacts with quite a thrill to the idea uh, and thinks that a more uh, intense and beautiful way to live. Anyway, um, okay, only a couple more. Um, as it happens right now, I'm rereading uh, Quixote, uh, Rusty's 2019 novel and reworking of Cervantes. Um, and uh, I actually reviewed this a couple of years ago and went to the launch, technically the official launch of the book, at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And there I met Rushdie briefly and got some books signed. Um, a good memory. And uh, here, uh, this is a very good book. It's uh, actually one of his best. His powers have certainly diminished with age. Um, and I believe, I remember when, uh, when I was there, he on stage read out uh, this little bit from his book, which is the opening paragraph. Now, the book deals with uh, this mad old man called Quixote, or who, rather, who takes the name Quixote, as in Quixote, uh, who wants to go on a quest to uh, uh, win his beloved, who is uh, a television personality. And he is, well, he's not very... Um, he's not right in the head. And he's TV addled, which is uh, where he found his supposed one true beloved. And at the opening, um, little uh, paragraph is quite a frenzied and uh, funny paragraph. And uh, I think shows that, uh, yes, the man, the man is not diminished with age. So... There once lived at a series of temporary addresses across the United States of America, a travelling man of Indian origin, advancing years and retreating mental powers, who, on account of his life in the yellow light... Oh, sorry, I'm going to start that again. I got a sidetracked there. I'll start again. <laughs> there once lived at a series of temporary addresses across the United States of America, a travelling man of Indian origin, advancing years, and retreating mental powers, who, on account of his love for mindless television, had spent far too much of his life in the yellow light of tawdry motel rooms watching an excess of it, and had suffered a peculiar form of brain damage as a result. He devoured morning shows, daytime shows, late-night talk shows, soaps, situation comedies, lifetime movies, hospital dramas, police series, vampire and zombie serials, the dramas of housewives from Atlanta, New Jersey, Beverly Hills and New York, the romances and quarrels of hotel fortune princesses and self-styled shahs, the cavortings of individuals made famous by happy nudities, 
the 15 minutes of fame accorded to young persons with large social media followings on account of their plastic surgery acquisition of a third breast or their post-rib removal figures that mimicked the impossible shape of the Mattel company's Barbie doll, or even, more simply, their ability to catch giant carp in picturesque settings while wearing only the tiniest of string bikinis. As well as singing competitions, cooking competitions, competitions for business propositions, competitions for business apprenticeships, competitions between remote-controlled monster vehicles, fashion competitions, competitions for the affections of both bachelors and bachelorettes, baseball games, basketball games, football games, wrestling bouts, kickboxing bouts, extreme sports programming, and, of course, beauty contests. He did not watch hockey. For people of his ethnic persuasion and tropical youth, hockey, which in the USA was renamed field hockey, was a game played on grass. To play field hockey on ice was, in his opinion, the absurd equivalent of ice skating on a lawn. And so, um, I'd like to finish off with just two more books. Uh, I know this is quite long, but... I feel like there's so much that I could <laughs> I could read out, you know. Um, first of all, a little bit from his uh, his memoir. Uh, his 2012 memoir, which is called Joseph Anton. Uh, it's written in the third person, by the way. So when he says he did this, he is Rushdie. Um And this is a little section where he is reflecting on his time, uh, his period when he was uh, germinating the satanic verses in his mind, uh, thinking of the ideas and themes that would eventually make their way into that book. So... There was a novel growing in him, but its exact nature eluded him. He had fragments of narratives and characters, as an obstinate instinct that, in spite of the enormous differences between these fragments, they all belonged in the same book. The precise shape and nature of the book remained obscure. It would be a big book, he knew that much, ranging widely over space and time, a book of journeys. That felt right. After he finished Shame, the first part of his plan had been completed. He had dealt, as well as he knew how to deal, with the worlds from which he had come. Now he needed to connect those worlds to the very different world in which he had made his life. He was beginning to see that this, rather than India or Pakistan or politics or magic realism, would be his real subject, the one he would worry away at for the rest of his life, the great matter of how the world joined up. Not only how the East flowed into the West and the West into the East, but how the past shaped the present. Well, the present changed our understanding of the past. And how the imagined world, the location of dreams, art, invention and yes, belief, leaked across the frontier that separated it from the everyday, real place in which human beings mistakenly believed they lived. This was what had happened to the shrinking planet. People... Communities, culture, 
no longer lived in little boxes, sealed away from one another. Now, all the little boxes opened up into all the other little boxes. A man's job in one country could be lost because of the machinations of a currency speculator from a faraway land whose name he didn't know and whose face he would never see. And, as the theorists of the new science of chaos told us, when a butterfly flapped its wings in Brazil, it could cause a hurricane in Texas. The original opening sentence of Midnight's Children had been, Most of what matters in our lives takes place in our absence. And even though in the end he had buried it elsewhere in the text, thinking it too Tolstoyan an opening, if there was one thing Midnight's Children was not, it was not Anna Karenina. The idea continued to nag at him. How to tell the stories of such a world, a world in which character was no longer always destiny, in which your fate could be determined not by your own choices but by those of strangers, in which economics could be destiny, or a bomb. He was on a plane home from Sydney, with his emotions running high after his first few overwhelming days with Robin. He took out a little black notebook and, to control himself, made himself think about his half-formed book. This was what he had. A bunch of migrants, or to use the British term, immigrants, from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Through his personal journeys, he, he could explore the joinings up and also just disjointed thises of here and there, then and now, reality and dreams. He had the beginnings of a character named Salahuddin Chamchawala, anglicised to Saladin Chamcha who had a difficult relationship with his father and had retreated into Englishness. He liked the name Chamcha for its echoes of Kafka's poor metamorphosed dung beetle Gregor Samza and of Gogol's scavenger of dead souls Chichikov, also for the meaning of the name in Hindustani, literally spoon, but colloquially toady or sycophant. Chamcha would be a portrait of a deracinated man fleeing from his father and country, from Indianness itself, towards an Englishness that wasn't really letting him in. An actor with many voices who did well as long as he remained unseen, on radio and doing TV voiceovers. His face was, in spite of all his Anglophilia, still the wrong colour for their colour TVs. And opposite Chamcha, well, a fallen angel perhaps. In 1982, the actor Amitabh Bachchan, the biggest star of the Bombay cinema, had suffered a near-fatal injury to his spleen while doing his own film stunts in Bangalore. In the months that followed, his hospitalisation was daily front-page news. Crowds waited outside the hospital for news, and politicians rushed to his bedside. As he lay close to death, the nation held its breath. When he rose again, the effect was almost Christ-like. There were actors in South India who had attained almost godlike status by portraying the gods in films called mythologicals. Bachan had become semi-divine even without the benefit of such a career. But what if a god actor, afflicted by a terrible injury, had called out to his god in his hour of need and heard no reply? What if, as a result of that appalling divine silence, such a man were to begin to question or even to lose the faith that had sustained him. Might he, in such a crisis of the soul, begin to lose his mind? 
And might he in his dementia flee halfway across the world, forgetting that when you run away, you can't leave yourself behind? What would such a falling star be called? The name came to him at once, as if it had been floating 35,000 feet above sea level all this time, waiting for him to capture it. Jibril, the angel Jib- Gabriel, Jibril Farishta, Jibril and Chamcha, the angel who had been abandoned by God, and the faux Englishman who had been estranged from his father. Two lost souls in the ruthless continuum of the unhoused. They would be his protagonists, this much he knew. If Jibril was an angel, was Chamcha a devil? Or might an angel become demonic, and could a devil wear a halo too? The journeys multiplied. Here was a fragment from somewhere else entirely. In February 1983, 38 Shia Muslims, followers of a man named Sayyad Vilayat Hussein Shah, were convinced by him that God would part the waters of the Arabian Sea at his request, so that they could make a pilgrimage across the ocean floor to the holy city of Karbala in Iraq. They followed him into the waters, and many of them were drowned. The most extraordinary part of the incident was that some of those who survived claimed, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, to have witnessed the miracle. He had been thinking about this story for over a year now. He didn't want to write about Pakistan or Shias, so in his imagination the believers became Sunni and Indian, and their leader became female. He remembered a giant banyan tree he had once seen in South India near Mysore, a tree so large that there were huts and wells inside it, and clouds of butterflies. A village began to take shape in his mind, Titlipur, butterfly town, and the mystic girl moved in a butterfly cloud. As Sunnis, they wanted to go to Mecca, not Karbala, but the idea of the parting of the sea was still at the heart of this tale. And other fragments crowded in, many of them about the city invisible, uh, the city visible but unseen, immigrant London in the age of Thatcher the actually existing London neighbourhoods of Southall in West London and Brick Lane to the east, where Asian immigrants lived, merged with Brixton south of the river, to form the imaginary central London borough of Brick Hall, in which a Muslim family of Orthodox parents and rebellious teenage daughters ran the Shandar Cafe, its name a thinly disguised urduing of the real brilliant cafe in Southall. In this borough, Interracial trouble was brewing, and perhaps soon the streets would burn. And here, reinvented, was Clarissa, um, uh, Rusty's then wife, given the Richardsonian name of Pamela Lovelace. And here, transformed from desert walker into mountaineer, and from Christian into Jew, was an avatar of Robin named Alleluia Cohen, or Cohn. And here, for some reason, was Clarissa's grandmother, May Jewel, a grand old lady living by the beach in Pevensey Bay, Sussex. The Norman ships of 1066, she would tell anyone who listened, would have sailed through her living room. The coastline was a mile further out to sea now than it had been nine centuries ago. Granny May had many tales to tell, and told them many times, always in the same ritual phrases of her Anglo-Argentine past on an estancia called Las Petacas, in the company of a vague philatelic husband, Charles Don Carlos Jewel, several hundred gauchos, very fierce and proud, 
and a herd of prime Argentine cattle. When the British ruled a quarter of the world, they went forth from their cold little Northern Ireland and became on the great plains and beneath the immense skies of India and Africa, more glamorous, extroverted, operatic personalities, bigger characters than there was room for back home. But then the age of empires ended and they had to diminish back into their smaller, colder, greyer island selves. Granny Mae in her little turret house, dreaming of the infinite pampas and the prize bulls who came like unicorns to lay their heads in her lap, seemed like such a figure, and all the more interesting, less cliched, because her story had happened not in the territories of the British Empire, but in Argentina. He wrote down a name for her in his notebook, Rosa Diamond. He was flying over India now, still making notes. He remembered hearing an Indian politician on TV talking about the British Prime Minister and being unable to pronounce her name properly. Mrs Torture, he kept saying. Mrs Margaret Torture. This was unaccountably funny, even though, perhaps because, Margaret Thatcher was obviously not a torturer. If this was to be a novel about Mrs T's London, maybe there was room, comic room, for this variant of her name. The act of migration, he wrote, puts into crisis everything about the migrating individual or group, everything about identity and selfhood and culture and belief. So if this is a novel about migration, it must be that act of putting in question. It must perform the crisis it describes. He wrote, how does newness enter the world? And he wrote, the satanic verses. Maybe there were three books here, or seven, or none. He'd actually tried to write the Rosa Diamond story once already, as a screenplay for Walter Donoghue at the fledgling Channel 4. But after he had finished and delivered a first draft, he asked Walter if he could withdraw it, because instinct told him he needed it for the novel, though he had no idea of how or where it would fit in. Maybe the parting of the Arabian Sea story was best treated as a separate book, and the satanic versus material would be strongest by itself as well. Why was he trying to force all his eggs into this one basket? Afterwards, he liked to think that the answer to these questions had come into his head when he was flying over Bombay. These are scenes, he found himself thinking, as he flew over the city of his birth, from the life of the Archangel Gabriel. His conscious mind was, as usual, at odds with his unconscious, which kept throwing angels and miracles at his rationality and insisting that he find ways to incorporate them into his way of seeing. So, a book about angels and devils, but perhaps it would be difficult to know which was which. Angels could do terrible deeds in the service of allegedly holy principles, and it was possible to have much compassion for Lucifer, the rebel angel whose punishment for rising up against the stultifying absolutist harp music of God's will was, as Daniel Defoe put it, to be confined to a vagabond wandering unsettled condition, without any certain abode, without any fixed place or space allowed him to rest the sole of his foot upon. This unhoused exiled Satan was perhaps the heavenly patron of all exiles, all unhoused people, all those who were torn from their place and left floating, half this, half that, denied the rooted person's comforting, defining sense of having solid ground beneath their feet. So, 
scenes from the life of the archangel and the archdevil, in which his own sympathy lay more on the devil's side, because, as Blake said of Milton, a true poet was of the devil's party. He didn't know the beginning of the novel until a year later. In June 1985, Air India Flight 182, the Emperor Kanishka, was blown up by Sikh terrorists fighting to carve an independent Sikh state to be called Khalistan out of the Indian Punjab. The plane fell into the Atlantic Ocean to the south of Ireland, and among the 329 people who died, mostly Canadian Indians or Indian citizens, was his childhood friend Neelam Nath on her way to Bombay with her children to see her parents, G.V. Nath, Uncle Nath, and Leela, his own parents' closest friends. Soon after he heard about this atrocity, he wrote the scene in which Jabril Farishta and Saladin Chamcha, travelling from Bombay to London, are in a plane that is blown up by Sikh terrorists. Jabril and Saladin are luckier than Neelam was. They make a soft landing on the beach at Pevensey Bay, outside Rosa Diamond's house. The book took more than <clears throat> pardon me, the book took more than four years to write. Afterwards, when people tried to reduce it to an insult, he wanted to reply, I can insult people a lot faster than that. But it did not strike his opponents as strange that a serious writer should spend a tenth of his life creating something as crude as an insult. That was because they refused to see him as a serious writer. In order to attack him and his work, it was necessary to paint him as a bad person, an apostate traitor, an unscrupulous seeker of fame and wealth, an opportunist whose work was without merit, who attacked Islam for his own personal gain. This was what was meant by the much-repeated phrase, he did it on purpose. Well, of course he had done it on purpose. How could one? How would one write a quarter of a million words by accident? The problem was, as Bill Clinton might have said, what one meant by it. The strange truth was that, after two novels that engaged directly with the public history of the Indian subcontinent, he saw this new book as a much more personal interior exploration, a first attempt to create a work out of his own experience of migration metamorphosis. To him, it was the least political book of the three. The material derived from the origin story of Islam was, he thought, essentially admiring of the Prophet of Islam and even respectful towards him. It treated him as he always said he wanted to be treated, as a man, the messenger, not a divine figure, like the Christian son of God. It showed him as a man of his time, shaped by that time, and as a leader, both subject to temptation and capable of overcoming it. What kind of idea are you? The novel asked the new religion and suggested that an idea that refused to bend or compromise would in most cases be destroyed, but conceded that, in very rare instances, such ideas became the ones that changed the world. His prophet flirted with compromise, then rejected it, and his unbending idea grew strong enough to bend history to its will. When he was first accused of being offensive, he was genuinely perplexed. He thought he had made an, inter- an artistic engagement with the phenomenon of revelation. An engagement from the point of view of an unbeliever, certainly, but a proper one nonetheless. How could that be thought offensive? 
The thin-skinned years of rage defined identity politics that followed taught him and everyone else the answer to that question. Anyway, his prophet was not called Muhammad, lived in a city not called Mecca, and created a religion not, or not quite, called Islam. And he appeared only in the dream sequences of a man being driven insane by his loss of faith. These many distancing devices were, in their creator's opinion, indicators of the fictive nature of his project. To his opponents, they were transparent attempts at concealment. He's hiding, they said, behind his fiction. As if fiction were a veil or an arras, and a man might be run through by a sword if, like Polonius, he foolishly hid behind such a flimsy shield. While he was writing the novel, he received an invitation from the American University in Cairo, asking him to come and talk to their students. They said they couldn't pay him much, but they could, if he were interested, arrange for him to take a boat up the Nile for a few days in the company of one of their leading Egyptologists. To see the world of ancient Egypt was one of his great unfulfilled dreams, and he wrote back quickly, If I could just finish my novel and arrange to come after that, that would be best, he suggested. Then he finished the novel, and it was the satanic verses, and a trip to Egypt became impossible, and he had to accept that he might never see the pyramids, or Memphis, or Luxor, or Thebes, or Abu Simbel. It was one of the many futures he would lose. And so I come now to the Satanic Verses itself, which I've often said is an all that should be remembered more for being a brilliant piece of literature rather than being the centre of a, a fatwa scandal. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of little bits from this. Again, I've done this before, I think, if I read from this book, but I'm not going to read the same bit. Uh, anyway. Um, I'll read the opening, um, uh, let's see the opening, yes, just the opening couple of uh, paragraphs first. Um, as he said in Joseph Anton, um, this is Jibril Farishta and Saladin Chamcha uh, falling from the sky after their plane is blown up by Sikh terrorists over the English Channel. <clears throat> So here we go. Oh, and by the way, I'm reading it from my first edition of the Satanic Verses, which I recently bought, uh, which is now a very precious possession. So here we go. <clears throat> to be born again, sang Jibril Farishta, tumbling from the heavens. First you have to die. Hoji, hoji. To land upon an abysmy earth, first one needs to fly. Ta-ta, takatun. How to ever smile again if first you won't cry? How to win the darling's love, mister, without a sigh? Baba, if you want to get born again. Just before winters, just before dawn, one winter's morning, New Year's Day or thereabouts, two real, full-grown, living men fell from a great height 29,002 feet towards the English Channel, without benefit of parachutes or wings, out of a clear sky. I tell you, you must die, I tell you, I tell you, and thusly and so beneath a moon of alabaster, until a loud cry crossed the night, to the devil with your tunes, the words hanging crystalline in the iced white night, 
In the movies, you only mind to play back singers, so spare me these infernal noises now. Jibril, the tuneless soloist, had been cavorting in moonlight as he sang his impromptu gazal, swimming in air, butterfly stroke, breast stroke, bunching himself into a ball, spread-eagling himself against the almost infinity of the almost dawn, adopting heraldic postures rampant, couchant, pitting levity against gravity. Now he rolled happily towards the sardonic voice. Oh hey, Salad Baba, it's you, too good, what hole, chumch? Which the other, a fastidious shadow falling headfirst in a grey suit, with all the jacket buttons done up, arms by his sides, taking for granted the improbability of the bowler hat on his head, pulled a nickname hater's face. Espuno, Jibril yelled, eliciting a second inverted wince. Proper London, by here we come. Those bastards down there won't know what hit them. Meteor or lightning or vengeance of God, out of thin air, baby. Daram, wham, na. What an entrance you are, I swear, splat. Out of thin air, a big bang followed by falling stars. A universal beginning, a miniature echo of the birth of time. The jumbo jet, Bostan, flight AI-420. Blew apart without any warning, high above the great, rotting, beautiful, snow-white, illuminated city, Mahagoni Babylon Alphaville. But Jibril has already named it, I mustn't interfere. Proper London, capital of Vilayet, winked, blinked, nodded in the night. While at Himalayan height, a brief and premature sun burst into the powdery January air, a blip vanished from radar screens, and a thin air was full of bodies, descending from the Everest of the catastrophe to the milky paleness of the sea. Who am I? Who else is there? The aircraft cracked in half, a seed pod giving up its spores, an egg yielding its mystery. Two actors, prancing Jibril and Buttony Purse, Mr Saladin Chamcha, fell like titbits of tobacco from a broken old cigar. Above, behind, below them in the void, there hung reclining seats, stereophonic headsets, drink trolleys, motion discomfort receptacles, disembarkation cards, duty-free video games, braided caps, paper cups, blankets, oxygen masks. Also, for there had been more than a few migrants aboard, yes, quite a quantity of wives who had been grilled by reasonable doing-their-job officials about the length of and distinguishing moulds upon their husband's genitalia. A sufficiency of children upon whose legitimacy the British government had cast its ever-reasonable doubts. Mingling with the remnants of the plane, equally fragmented, equally absurd, there floated the debris of the soul, broken memories, sloughed-off selves, severed mother-tongues, violated privacies, untranslatable jokes, extinguished futures, lost loves, the forgotten meaning of hollow, booming words, land, belonging, home... Knocked a little silly by the blast, Jibril and Saladin plummeted like bundles dropped by some carelessly open-beaked stork. And because Chamcha was going down head first, in the recommended position for babies entering the birth canal, he commenced to feel a low irritation at the other's refusal to fall in plain fashion. Saladin nosedived while Farishta embraced air, hugging it with his arms and legs, a flailing, overwrought actor without techniques of restraint. Below, cloud-covered, awaiting their entrance, the slow, congealed currents of the English sleeve, the appointed zone of their watery reincarnation.
Next, um, the opening uh, couple of uh, little paragraphs from the first of the Mahound sections, um, as again Rushdie explained in that pa- passage from Joseph Anton. Um, uh, this is his uh, look at the origin story of Islam, albeit uh, through the eyes of Jibril Farishta, who is mad, uh, and he's having visions um, and struggling with his faith. And uh, you know there are many distancing um, um, elements. So. Uh, but yeah, so here here we go, uh, just a little bit. Jibril is having one of his visions, uh, dreaming of the origins of something like his Muslim faith. Jibril, when he submits to the inevitable, when he slides heavy-lidded towards visions of his angeling, passes his loving mother, who has a different name for him, Shaitan, she calls him, just like Shaitan, same to same, because he has been fooling around with the tiffins to be carried into the city for the office worker's lunch. Mischievous imp, she slices the air with her hand. Rascal has been putting Muslim meat compartments into Hindu non-veg tiffin carriers. Customers are up in arms. Little devil, she scolds, but then folds him in her arms. My little Farishta, boys will be boys. And he falls past her into sleep grown bigger as he falls, and the falling begins to feel like flight. His mother's voice wafts distantly up to him. Baba, look how you grew enormous. Wawa, applause. He is gigantic, wingless, standing with his feet upon the horizon and his arms around the sun. In the early dreams, he sees beginnings, shaitan cast down from the sky, making a grab for a branch of the highest thing, the lote tree of the uttermost end that stands beneath the throne, shaitan missing, plummeting, splat. But he lived on, was not, couldn't be dead, sang from hell below his soft, seductive verses, or oh, the sweet songs that he knew. With his daughters as his fiendish backing group, yes, the three of them, Lat, Manat, Uza, motherless girls laughing with their Abba, giggling behind their hands at Jibril. What a trick we got in store for you, they giggle, for you and for that businessman on the hill. But before the businessman, there are other stories. Here he is, Archangel Jibril, revealing the spring of Zamzam to Hagar the Egyptian, so that, abandoned by the prophet Ibrahim with her child in the desert, she might drink the cool spring waters and so live. And later, after the Jorhum filled up Zamzam with mud and golden gazelles, so that it was lost for a time, here he is again, pointing it out to that one, Mutalib of the scarlet tents, father of the child with the silver hair who fathered in turn the businessman. The businessman. Here he comes. Sometimes when he sleeps, Jibril becomes aware, without the dream, of himself sleeping, of himself dreaming his own awareness of his dream. And then a panic begins. Oh God, he cries out. Oh, oh God, oh Allah God, I've had my bloody chips, me. Got bugs in their brain, full mad, a loony tune and a gone baboon. Just as he, the businessman, felt when he first saw the archangel. Thought he was cracked, wanted to throw himself down from a rock, from a high rock, from a rock on which there grew a stunted low tree, a rock as high as the roof of the world. He's coming making his way up Cone Mountain to the cave. Happy birthday, he's 44 today. 
But though the city behind and below him throngs with festival up he climbs, alone. No new birthday suit for him, neatly pressed and folded at the foot of his bed. A man of ascetic tastes. What strange manner of businessman is this? Question. What is the opposite of faith? Not disbelief, too final, certain, closed. Itself a kind of belief. Doubt. The human condition. But what of the angelic? Halfway between Allah God and Homo Sap. Did they ever doubt? They did. Challenging God's will one day, they hid muttering beneath the throne, daring to ask forbidden things, anti-questions. Is it right that? Could it not be argued? Freedom, the old anti-quest. He calmed them down, naturally, employing management skills a la God. Flattered them. You will be the instruments of my will on earth, of the salvation, damnation of man, all the usual, etc. And hey, presto, end of protest, on with the halos, back to work. Angels are easily pacified. Turn them into instruments and they'll play your harpy tune. Human beings are tougher nuts, can doubt anything, even the evidence of their own eyes. Of behind their own eyes, of what, as they sink heavy-lidded, transpires behind closed peepers. Angels, they don't have much in the way of a will. To will is to disagree, not to submit, to dissent. I know, devil talk, shaitan interrupting Jibril. Me. The businessman looks as he should, high forehead, eagle nose, broad in the shoulders, narrow in the hip. Average height, brooding, dressed in two pieces of plain cloth, each four L's in length, one draped around his body, the other over his shoulder. Large eyes, long lashes like a girl's. His strides can seem too long for his legs, but he's a light-footed man. Orphans learn to be moving targets, develop a rapid walk, quick reactions, hold your tongue caution. Up through the thorn bushes and up balsam trees he comes, scrabbling on boulders. This is a fit man, no soft belly user or he. And yes, just state it again, takes an odd sort of business walla to cut off into the wilds up Mount Cone, sometimes for a month at a stretch, just to be alone. His name... A dream name, changed by the vision. Pronounced correctly, it means he for whom thanks should be given. But he won't answer to that here, nor, though he's well aware of what they call him, to his nickname in Jahilia down below, he who goes up and down Old Coney. Here, he is neither Mahomet nor Mohammed, has adopted instead the demon tag the Faranges hung around his neck. To turn the insults into strengths, Wigs, Tories, Blacks, all chose to wear with pride the names they were given in scorn. Likewise, our mountain-climbing, prophet-motivated solitary is to be the medieval baby-frightener, the devil's synonym, Mahound. That's him, Mahound the businessman, climbing his hot mountain in the Hejaz. The mirage of a city shines below him in the sun. And finally, finally from the satanic verses... And I hope this isn't uh, too uh, obscure and plot-heavy. It might be a bit difficult to know exactly what's going on without having read up to this point. But here is a climatic section. Uh, Jibril and Saladin have uh, become uh, enemies. Um, And right now at this point there's a, a massive fire in London in Brick Hall. 
and uh, Saladin has become trapped underneath a, um, a piece of timber uh, or roof in the Shandar Cafe and uh, Jibril, the angel, uh, finds him and so we see, uh, you know, what will he do with his old enemy at his mercy, Jibril, angel and the devil, Saladin. Uh, and yes, this is a time of great racial tension and fire and riots and so on in London. Um, but here we go. What happens when you win? When your enemies are at your mercy, how will you act then? Compromise is the temptation of the weak. This is the test for the strong. Spino, Jibril nods at the fallen man. You really fooled me, mister. Seriously, you're quite a guy. And Chamcha, seeing what's in Jibril's eyes, cannot deny the knowledge he sees there. Hwa, he begins and gives up. What are you going to do? Fire is falling all around them now, a sizzle of golden rain. Why did you do it? Jibril asks, then dismisses the question with a wave of the hand. Damn fool thing to be asking. Might as well inquire what possessed you to rush in here. Damn thing, fool to do. People eh, Spino? Crazy bastards, that's all. Now there are pools of fire all around them. Soon they will be encircled, marooned in a temporary island amid this lethal sea. Chamcha is kicked a second time in the chest and jerks violently. Facing three deaths by fire, by natural causes, and by Jibril, he strains desperately, trying to speak, but only croaks emerge. me, Forgive me. Have pa, Have pity. The cafe tables are burning. More beams fall from above. Jibril seems to have fallen into a trance. He repeats vaguely, bloody damn fool things. Is it possible that evil is never total, that its victory, no matter how overwhelming, is never absolute? Consider this fallen man. He sought without remorse to shatter the mind of a fellow human being, and exploited to do so an entirely blameless woman, at least partly owing to his own impossible and voyeuristic desire for her. Yet this same man has, risk, has risked death with scarcely any hesitation in a foolhardy rescue attempt. What does this mean? The fire has closed around the two men and smoke is everywhere. It can only be a matter of seconds before they are overcome. There are more urgent questions to answer than the damn fool ones above. What choice will Farishta make? Does he have a choice? Jibril lets fall his trumpet, stoops, frees Saladin from the prison of the fallen beam and lifts him in his arms. Chamcha, with broken ribs as well as arms, groans feebly, sounding like the creationist Dumsday before he got a new tongue of choicest rump. Tala! It's too late. A little lick of fire catches at the hem of his coat. Acrid black smoke fills all available space, creeping behind his eyes, deafening his ears, clogging his nose and lungs. Now, however, 
Jibril Farishta began softly to exhale, a long, continuous exhalation of extraordinary duration, and as his breath blows towards the door, it slices through the smoke and fire like a knife. And Saladim Chamcha, gasping and fainting, with a mule inside his chest, seems to see, but will ever afterwards be unsure if it was truly so, the fire parting before them like the Red Sea it has become, and the smoke dividing also like a curtain or a veil, until there lies before them a clear pathway to the door, whereupon Jibril Farishta steps quickly forward, bearing Saladin along the path of forgiveness into the hot night air, so that on a night when the city is at war, a night heavy with enmity and rage, there is this small redeeming victory for love. Uh, I was going to finish off with uh, another section of Joseph Anton, um, where he uh, reflects on his memories of 9-11 and gives a very moving um, um, meditation on the importance of love and literature in the face of such hatred. Um, But I think, actually, because this has gone on far too long, um, and I think that that bit of the satanic verses says everything one needs to know about that subject in a way and is an appropriate place to end on. And so that will that will be me for now. Um, I don't know if uh, if there's any news. Let me have a quick check. Uh, I just saw a little article titled Salman Rushdie Melu's eye is on ventilator, his agent says. some news there um yeah geez that's hell of a headline may lose eye fuck but he's still going he's still alive yeah that's good he's an old old man asthmatic stabbed in the neck and the abdomen um undergone surgery on a ventilator uh Many people of his age and many younger and weaker, uh, even perhaps stronger, would have uh, succumbed already. Uh, But he's still alive. Yes, still alive. Let's hope he pulls through. Okay, that's uh, that's me. Pull through, Salman. Pull through. You are loved.